cast your mind back. It's late February and the virus is spreading out of Eastern Asia and across the world. From its origins in China, the deadly disease has successfully made the leap from animals to humans and has already caused fatalities in Vietnam, Thailand and elsewhere. The World Health Organization is warning of a possible pandemic and of mass death and around the world people are growing fearful. In Downing Street, the Prime Minister ponders how to respond. The WHO had issued a report claiming there would be 500 to 700,000 deaths, the PM writes, reflecting on the episode afterwards. The old First World War flu statistics were rolled out, everyone went into a general panic, and any particular cases drew astonishing headlines of impending doom. Anyone who caught a cold thought they were part of a worldwide disaster. This particular joker in number 10, making light of World Health Organization pandemic warnings, is not, in fact, Boris Johnson. Sadly, we'll have to wait a little bit longer for his own, no doubt, searingly honest memoirs. No, this passage is from the autobiography of Tony Blair, as he reflects on the 2005 outbreak of H5N1 avian flu. You remember Tony Blair, right? Always seemed quite good in a crisis, that guy who spent most of the past year telling the government it's handling the pandemic all wrong? Yeah, him. So how did Prime Minister Blair respond to his own potential pandemic? The outbreak of an avian flu virus which kills 60% of humans who contract it. What did he make of warnings from a now familiar roll call of experts, including David Nabarro at the WHO and Neil Ferguson at Imperial College London? Helpfully, Blair's memoirs reveal all. I'm afraid I tried to do the minimum we could, Blair wrote in 2010, with the minimum expenditure. I understood the risk, but it just didn't seem to me that the pan-panic was quite justified. In those situations, everyone is so risk-averse that unless you take care, you end up spending a fortune to thwart a crisis that never materialises. Oh dear. Tried to do the minimum we could? Pan-panic? Perhaps we should introduce 2005-era Blair to those lockdown sceptics you see on Twitter. They get on like a house on fire. Now, in one sense, of course, Tony Blair was proven right. In 2005, the feared human-to-human -human transmission never properly materialised. Bird flu stayed mostly in birds, and only a few hundred people were killed worldwide. And yet, the warnings were real, and the threat was real. But in what we would now recognise as the crucial early stages of a possible pandemic, Tony Blair rolled his eyes and tried to do the minimum. I found this episode really instructive as a thought back to Boris Johnson's own stumbling response to the coronavirus pandemic in its early stages last year. A very senior official working in Downing Street during those crucial early weeks of January and February 2020 told me recently the problem was that at first, and I quote, nobody took it seriously. It's a damning admission given what we know now, but hardly a surprising one. You'll remember the missed Cobra meetings the PM's insistence we keep going about our lives as normal. That trip to the rugby in March with his pregnant fiance. I, I, this. I, I'm shaking hands. Continuously. I was at a, I was at a hospital the other night where I think there were a few, there were actually a few coronavirus uh, patients, and I shook hands with everybody. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. And, and I can... Okay, so obviously Tony Blair would never have said that. 
In fact, the same Downing Street source tells me Johnson was specifically advised not to advocate handshaking, but was triggered by news that in Wuhan people were tapping one another's feet as a safer form of greeting, which he thought was preposterous and must be met head on. But anyway, Boris Johnson being Boris Johnson aside, the broader point stands. How many Western politicians pre-2020 really took the threat of pandemic seriously? How many, when a threat first arose, would have done more than, as Tony Blair put it, the minimum we could with the minimum expenditure? A quick glance around Europe and the Americas right now tells the answer is not very many. In fact, what is so fascinating about pandemics is that throughout history, politicians have always responded to these crises in exactly the same ways. From the Black Death to the Spanish Flu, from the Great Plague of Marseille to the cholera riots of the 1830s, you see the same challenges, the same half-baked solutions, and the same dreadful mistakes repeated over and over again. There are lockdowns and quarantines to enforce, social distancing to grapple with, fake news and disinformation to tackle head-on. There are politicians who act swiftly and decisively, and there are those who put their fingers in their ears and hope it all just goes away about having to do you know a lot of people think that goes away in april with the heat as the heat comes it's in. going to disappear one day it's like a miracle it will disappear from politico i'm jack blanchard and each week on the westminster insider podcast i'll be looking at a single theme or an issue which is central to the way british politics works today There will be different types of episodes, profiles, long-form interviews, deep dives into policy areas. But in this first pilot episode, I want to delve into the history books to look back at the deadly pandemics which have rocked Western societies for millennia, and at the politicians and the leaders who always, always struggle to cope. Tanu, who's my, my favourite political hero. I would mention Pericles of Athens, uh, who believed in uh, all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, he Inside Boris Johnson's parliamentary office, in pride of place, sits a bust of the Athenian statesman Pericles. Pericles was a populist and a democrat who led the city-state of Athens through its golden age. He was obsessed with building things, creating jobs by lavishing public money on grandiose construction schemes. Uh, he certainly believed in great infrastructure projects. He was the greatest public speaker of his time, a guy who could talk his people into just about anything. But above all, Pericles will go down as one of the most powerful uh, articulators of the idea of democracy. His name meant surrounded by glory, and he truly believed that such would be his fate. But just like the British Prime Minister who idolises him two and a half thousand years later, Pericles' greatest domestic challenge, and indeed his final undoing, would be disease. An epidemic which ripped through his homeland and left tens of thousands of people dead. His great strength was his ability to make everybody trust him. This is Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London. Until, actually, the plague, that's the first real political trouble he got, he got into. Until then, he managed to convince everybody to vote for him year after year after year. He seems to have had, like, cross-class support. The historians all explained it from the point of view of his oratory. Politicians today would really not have a clue how to do what he did because you have to speak in the open air to those 30,000 men, some occasions to like a 100,000 men, people, without uh, any amplification, no megaphones, no technology. So it's an extraordinary performance art. And he had an, a, an exceptional vocabulary. He was very, very highly educated. OK, so upper class, populist leader, 
larger-than-life character, big on public spending, pulling in support from across the political spectrum, hugely popular right up until the moment this horrible pandemic arrives. Stop me, won't you, if any of this sounds familiar. Oh, and, yeah, there's also this. Um, just before we get on to the plague, I just wanted to ask you about his personal life, because yeah. I think that was quite controversial, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Pericles married for expedient reasons, and it was a miserably unhappy marriage. He did have legitimate sons, but this intellectual bent that he had made him fall madly in love with a very, very cultured, high-class courtesan. That's right. Pericles had a controversial young girlfriend. And yes, he abandoned his wife and moved in with her. And uh, no, in case you were wondering, we're not sure how many children he had either. Her name was Aspasia. And although the sources on her are um, extremely unreliable, because you can imagine a woman like her was lampooned in comedy and all sorts of very scurrilous tales were told, uh, there's also s- some serious evidence that she actually helped him with his speech writing. You know, she was his, his, his soulmate, complete soulmate. The fact that she was known to be so intelligent and to share his interests intellectually raised eyebrows, if you like. It was more fear that he, he was being dominated by her. That's the sort of rumour that you get in fragments of old comedy. If she'd been just a very winsome um, bit of arm candy, eye candy, you know, totem, beautiful girlfriend, I don't think it would have done him any harm at all. But in fact, she was potentially getting involved in decision-making, advising, speech-writing. That's what people said. For all the whiff of scandal around his personal life, Pericles' position as leader looked unassailable until the plague of Athens struck without warning in 430 BC. Thousands of people began to fall sick and to die, and Pericles, this great leader, this grand public speaker, this builder of temples, well, he was powerless to act. Fatally, his medics had no idea how to slow the spread of a disease which historians struggle to even identify. There was nothing he could do. And in the first wave of the plague in 430, one of the most tragic details, he says, is that uh, all the people who knew anything about medicine were the first to go. So that that actually has huge parallels with, I'm afraid, some of the scenes from COVID when we saw high numbers of health professionals dying. The scale of the suffering was unimaginable. Between a quarter and a half of Athens' population died inside three years. Society itself began to break down. There were people left unburied. You know, the, the whole um, mechanisms for dealing with the dead broke down completely. People dying in the streets, literally on the pavements. And lots of people turned to crime because there were houses left empty or with only dying people in with lots of nice valuables in them. Thucydides, who's our major eyewitness source for it, uh, said that it had no respect for strong or healthy bodies whatsoever, all alike fell. You could be as fit as a fiddle and they, they fell like flies. Could Pericles have tried something in the sort of social distancing space that might have made a difference? G- given the breakdown of law and order that Thucydides describes, I think it would have been incredibly difficult to impose. The uh, Athenians didn't even actually have a police force. (laughs) Uh, They regarded it as crucial in their democracy that they never touched each other in in anger or violence. So they had a hired set of mercenaries, almost like nightclub heavies, right, who under the jurisdiction 
of Athenian magistrates would do things like arrests and executions. The military and the navy men, the strong men, were the first to die. There was a, just a shortage of sort of energetic manpower that, that, you know, like we saw Chinese actually nailing up people's blocks of flats in Wuhan. I think that would have been extremely difficult. Um, I, and I'm not sure they understood enough about the contagion even to know whether they were getting it from direct contact with other people or from the water. The timing of this domestic disaster could not have been any worse for Pericles, who had just led the Athenians into the bloody Peloponnesian War, taking on a group of neighbouring states led by Sparta. And his efforts to protect his people from enemy raids only exacerbated the epidemic. And every summer he would bring in all the peasant farmers inside the walls. The overcrowding and the heat had made the plague far more contagious. So his very innovativeness, his very refusal to be bound by sort of traditional natural shackles, I think absolutely, without doubt, you were more likely to get the plague if you were living in the temporary huts they put up, squashed inside the city centre with shared water supplies, than if you're your own lovely little um, freeholding of a couple of acres. Finally, if, if you were a politician in 2020 looking back at the plague of Athens and looking for lessons you might be able to draw from it. Is there anything that might have helped from looking back at what happened? When you deliberate about going to war, you need to factor in random misfortune. I also think that he was too reluctant to let people go back out to their ancestral farmlands. You know how some politicians, once they've got got a policy, they're going to stick to it. And this policy had worked for 30 years, so... He wasn't going to give it up now. In the end, Pericles himself succumbed to the disease, along with both his legitimate sons. Pericles' death during the Great Plague is seen by many as the beginning of the end of Athens' golden age, with lesser politicians assuming command and ultimately leading the city to crushing military defeat. His fate would serve as a warning to Western leaders down the centuries, find a way to slow major disease outbreaks or pay a terrible price. It's a warning that sits in Boris Johnson's office to this day. Pericles seemed helpless in the face of pandemic, but as history and science progressed, future politicians would develop rudimentary tools designed to slow the spread of serious disease. The first efforts at a fight back can be seen when the Black Death sweeps into Europe without warning in the 14th century, imported by raiding Mongol armies from the east. It wasn't the first bubonic plague pandemic that Europe had seen, but it was easily the worst, wiping out at least a third or perhaps a half of the continent's population in a few short years. As you'd expect, politicians of the day were badly hampered by their lack of understanding of this fearful disease. Most believe the pandemic was the act of a vengeful god. We now know the real culprits were flea-ridden rats. What happens is it basically is what happens in a lot of these epidemics, and we've seen today, is a transmission from animals to humans. So this is Sir Richard Evans, please. Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Cambridge, and the author of multiple books, lectures and articles on epidemic disease. And of course, rats are travelling in those, in those days on, on ships. And in the Middle Ages, not a very hygienic period. And so particularly among the poor, fleas are very, very, very common. Uh, and so it's bites from fleas that really infected people. So far, so familiar. A disease originates in China, makes the leap from animals to humans, before sweeping across Europe in a deadly wave. Politicians are caught flat-footed. But this time, 
a handful of pioneering leaders realised radical action is needed. They didn't really understand it, but they did notice that it was moving from place to place, particularly by the sea. And that's when you get particularly Italian seaports begin to impose what's called a quarantine. Blazing the trail here was a guy called Jacob of Padua. He's a sort of visionary 14th century Chris Whitty who served as chief medical officer in the Mediterranean port we now call Dubrovnik. First, Jacob demanded all the sick be housed and treated in hostels outside the city walls. Then he went further, ordering all sailors and goods arriving from plague-hit areas to spend a month in isolation on uninhabited islands in the Adriatic. Italian leaders would later extend the isolation period to 40 days, or quaranta. Quarantine, as we now know it, was born. Uh, that's 40 days, uh, 40 days of isolation, so that the victims of the plague, of ships arriving from plague-infected areas, were closed down and were, were stopped from disembarking for 40 days. In England, politicians began to copy these techniques of quarantine and forced isolation as the plague returned in waves over the next few hundred years. An Act of Parliament in 1604 ordered watchmen to keep plague-infected people and their families locked in their houses by violence if necessary, and prescribed hanging for anyone with a plague sore found wandering the streets. Hanging. Kind of puts our 10pm pub curfew into perspective. Victims of plague are shut up in houses or taken to hospitals. So you get this image that everybody knows about from the Great Plague of London and where uh, people who have plague are shut up in their houses, a red cross on the door, and people are stopped from coming out. The Great Plague epidemic of 1665 was among the worst outbreaks London had ever seen. The author Daniel Defoe wrote in a journal of the plague year that London might well be said to be all in tears. Although in those days being in tears meant weeping for the dead rather than sitting around in beer gardens arguing about whether a scotch egg is a substantial meal. But for all the innovations around quarantine and isolation, the ability of politicians to effectively enforce these measures was limited. So they isolate the sick, they isolate ships arriving from plague-ridden areas. Eventually, I see, they actually isolate whole towns, villages, even cities where plague has broken out. Yes, you can try and do that, obviously, but the immediate instinct of large numbers of people when a plague hits is to flee. They just leave the area that's being infected. This is partly because one common explanation for these diseases, including the Black Death, is foul air. It's caused by what's called a miasma rising from the ground from rotting vegetation and rotting materials, and there's plenty of those in medieval cities. So... Uh, quite a few people thought the safe thing to do is to leave. And of course, by leaving, they spread the disease further. So throughout the plague years, you find desperate politicians taking increasingly draconian steps, quarantines, lockdowns, forced isolation, but finding their impact to be frustratingly hit and miss. What's more, the tough lockdown measures they deploy come with a serious economic cost, particularly for the rich trading ports, which are inevitably the front line for the arrival of new disease. It's no coincidence that the last big outbreak in Western Europe comes at just such a port, in what we now remember as the Great Plague of Marseille. The use of quarantine had become part of life for this bustling French city, but their impositions were always a tense affair, setting health officials against wealthy merchants. These conflicts erupted again when a ship returned from the Levant in 1720, laden with valuable textiles for sale, but stricken also by plague. 
Several passengers and members of the crew had already died, yet one of the ship's owners, a guy called Jean-Baptiste Estelle, who just happened to be the deputy mayor of Marseille, was able to pressure the city's health board to release its valuable cargo after just a few days. The flea-infested cloth was transported to local markets. Plague ripped through the city. Belatedly, regional leaders put Marseille under the strictest of lockdowns, with a seven-foot-high plague wall built around the city and a quarter of the French army deployed. It was all far too late. By the time the crisis was over, between a third and a half of Marseille's population had died, along with tens of thousands more in the surrounding region. Estelle's fateful decision to allow the plague-ridden cloth to enter the city's markets is rude to this day. The dilemma is, what do you prioritise? Do you prioritise beating the epidemic and saving lives? Or do you prioritise keeping the economy going and perhaps in that way saving lives in a different way? This same dilemma was faced by merchant leaders of another major port, Hamburg, a century and a half later, during a very different sort of epidemic. This 19th century menace was cholera, an infection of the gut causing vomiting, diarrhoea and extreme dehydration. It became known as the Blue Terror due to the colour people's faces would turn as they drew close to death. Politicians had responded to the arrival of cholera into Europe in the 1830s with the same policies they deployed against the plague, quarantine, lockdown, self-isolation, but the spread of this new disease would not be checked. We now know, of course, that cholera is transmitted by infected water supplies. It took several decades for leaders to grasp that the so-called miasmatists who blamed disease on bad air were just wrong, and that sanitation, clean water and sewage systems were the solution. But these were expensive measures, and not everyone was convinced. So the city fathers of Hamburg, who were merchants, it was not a democracy, the whole electoral system was rigged so the merchant class remained in control. These are very seriously rich people who depend on trade. They uh, made sure that the doctors, the medical officials in the city, were miasmatists. And they instructed them explicitly, I found the documents which they did this, not to make any announcement of the presence of cholera in the city prematurely, which means keep storm and hope it'll go away. Sure enough, when a sewage worker fell sick in the summer of 1892 and died of cholera, the Hamburg authorities' first instinct was to try to keep it quiet. So, fatally, the announcement of the disease's presence was delayed by over a week. It's summer, it's very hot, the level of the water in the River Elbe which goes through Hamburg is very low, and so the cholera bacillus goes into the water from immigrants, people who've come from Russia, fleeing pogroms, fleeing restrictions on their lives. They stay in very insanitary conditions in, in, the, in the city. Their excretions go into the water, they're swept upstream, and they go into the inlet of the water supply. The uh, municipal water supply in Hamburg was not filtered because the various fa different factions in, in the government, the merchants, the house owners, and so on, had, uh, they didn't want to spend a lot of money on facilities like filtering the water supply, which had been built many decades earlier, uh, and so it was not filtered, and it went into every house in the city that was connected to the mains. And that's how it spread so incredibly quickly. Thousands of people began to fall sick, and by the time the epidemic was over, 13% of the city's population had been killed. Yet tellingly, the epidemic was contained almost entirely within Hamburg. 
Politicians in neighbouring Altona had installed a sand-filtered water supply decades earlier, and residents were largely unaffected. In the nearby port of Bremen, local leaders acted swiftly with a massive public health campaign, urging people to wash their hands, boil their water. Only six people in the whole of Bremen died. What happened then, of course, was that the imperial government, the Kaiser Wilhelm, sent in a kind of hit squad uh, led by Koch, the Robert Koch, the great bacteriologist from the Imperial Health Office, and they just took the city over. Uh, they organised water supplies, tankers full of clean water, distributing it. People were told uh, not to use the taps. There's uh, isolation, there's disinfection squads going to people's homes. It was a massive implementation of, of Koch's ideas. Eventually, the epidemic died away. But such was the scale of public and federal anger that political reform was forced upon Hamburg and the merchant class, which had prioritised the economy above all else, was forced to cede power. As lessons from history go, this one was about as subtle as a sledgehammer. Politicians struggling with the cholera epidemics of the 19th century had a secondary issue to deal with too. Mass public unrest caused by the spread of misinformation about the causes of the new disease. When people don't understand something or, or they resist explanations, then you get conspiracy theories. It wasn't 5G foam masts or Bill Gates being blamed, of course, but the same sort of conspiracy theory swept Europe like wildfire. There are measures which cause enormous resentment, which governments take, and this caused reactions. In the early 1830s, there were quite a lot of riots in Britain because not long before, you had the Burke and Hare outrages where these two villains, Burke and Hare in Edinburgh, had been killing people and selling their corpses to the anatomy schools. And so people started to riot, saying, we're going to be burked. People are dying of cholera, and it must be that they're being killed in order to supply the doctors. And you get cholera riots are quite widespread in the 19th century. Strikingly, conspiracy theories had also swept across Europe in the Middle Ages, as panicking residents looked for people to blame for the mass death caused by the plague. At that time, attention had swiftly turned with a grim predictability towards the Jewish population. Of course, the Jews were the um, only religious minority, non-Christians, in Western Europe uh, at a time when Europe was solidly, devoutly Christian. And so they were blamed for poisoning the wells and there were terrible, horrible pogroms anti-Jewish riots, murders, Jews are burnt to death publicly on town squares. And to his credit, the Pope of the day issued a couple of papal bulls denouncing this and saying, well, Jews can't be responsible because it's, it's happening whether Jews are not present at all. So political leadership against misinformation during a pandemic, exactly what you need, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yes, yes. It's nothing, nothing new, you know. So what of modern-day epidemics? Are there lessons for politicians to be found in the 20th century too? The last great pandemic to sweep the globe prior to 2020 was in some ways the cruelest of all. The so-called Spanish flu of 1918 arrived just as the First World War was finally drawing to a close and proved deadliest for the same young adults in their 20s and 30s who'd just endured the most brutal global conflict. John M. Barry, the author of The Great Influenza, one of the books cited by Bill Gates as having sparked his interest in pandemic research, spoke to me from his home in New Orleans 
about the astonishing scale of the 1918 disaster. The consensus view is that the 1918 pandemic killed between 50 and 100 million people. While most deaths took a week or more, there are very credible reports of deaths that occurred 12 hours after the first symptoms. Uh, some of the symptoms could be horrific. In the book, I quote a uh, physician who says people were turning so dark blue from lack of oxygen that he couldn't tell African-American troops from white troops. Probably the scariest symptom, which occurred somewhat rarely, but still common enough that it's definitely did occur, would be you could bleed not just from your nose, but from your mouth, ears, and eyes. That's pretty frightening. So much for it's just the flu, right? With the First World War still blazing, few nations were in a position to impose effective quarantine, meaning individual regions, towns, cities, they were left to fend for themselves as the virus swept across the world. The US experience was especially telling, with local politicians taking different approaches in different states. In, in, in your book, you focus on Philadelphia for significant reason, that it's one of the worst affected places. Let's just talk about that a little bit. What sort of a city was Philadelphia in 1918? Who was running it and what kind of place was it? Well, it was big, the third largest city in the country. It was run by a political machine, one of the most corrupt in America. In fact, in the middle of the pandemic, the mayor was indicted, not for something simple like sticking money in his pocket, but as an accessory to murder. <laughs> so they were thugs and saloon keepers were major donors to the machine. They had a public health director who was a perfectly decent guy, but didn't have the guts to stand up to the machine. Even as the pandemic swept through the East Coast, with bodies piling up and hospitals overflowing, Philadelphia's public health director, Dr. Vilma Krusen, publicly denied that influenza posed any threat to the city. He stockpiled no supplies. He compiled no lists of emergency medical personnel to call upon. He dismissed calls to ban mass gatherings or to shut down pubs and schools. The rich saloon bar owners were getting all they could ask for. And the American press played its part, believing it was helping the war effort. Because of the war, there was this context that you have to remember. In Europe, all the warring countries censored their press. In the United States, it was self-censorship, but it was extremely effective self-censorship. In Philadelphia, for example, they had planned a, well, in fact, a lot of cities around the country had a major parade to raise money for the war, Liberty Loan Parade on September 28th. The medical community begged the health commissioner and the mayor to cancel that parade. The newspapers refused to print stories of their own reporters who had interviewed medical leaders. They refused to print letters to the editor from leading physicians. The doctors knew this was no ordinary parade. It was to be the grandest in Philadelphia's history, with marchers stretching two miles through the streets and hundreds of thousands of people jammed in along the sidewalks to watch. The ultimate super-spreader event. Parade went forward, hundreds of thousands of people close together, singing patriotic songs and like clockwork, you know, 48 hours later, influenza really exploded in Philadelphia. Later in Philly, when they were actually using steam shovels to dig mass graves, and they went a belatedly, finally closed saloons, theaters, restaurants, schools, and so forth. 
one of the newspapers talking about the closing orders actually said, quote, this is not a public health measure. You have no cause for panic or alarm, unquote, which, of course, is an absurd statement. People are dying in droves. There are hundreds of deaths a day in Philadelphia uh, at this time and, you know, thousands a day sick. Belatedly, Philadelphia went into lockdown. Did, did we see something that you could recognize as social distancing happening in 1918? Was that a concept that people well, yeah. recognized? Yeah, absolutely. They didn't use that phrase, but it was stay away from, from crowds. The fact is there were no crowds, <laughs> largely because, you know, with a disease as lethal as the 1918 virus, nobody went out. There was a much higher level of fear much higher. Going back to Philadelphia, for an example, there's a uh, guy who was a med student at the time who was working at an emergency hospital 12 miles from his home. And when he went home every night, he saw so few cars on the road, he started counting them. In a drive of 12 miles in the third biggest city in the United States, he did not find one other car on the road. He said the life of the city is almost stopped. Other American cities, watching on in horror, acted more swiftly with lockdown measures to stay ahead of the virus. St. Louis, San Francisco, Milwaukee, Kansas City are among those credited with responding fastest, shutting down schools, churches and other public gatherings. Interventions in those cities are credited with cutting transmission rates by up to 50%. Cities that closed earlier before the disease was widely seeded in the community and stayed closed longer, fared better in terms of both morbidity and mortality. And earlier this year, there were studies by economists uh, associated with one of the Federal Reserve Banks that concluded cities that stayed closed longer actually fared better in terms of their economic recovery as well. The British Prime Minister and the US President both went down with bad cases of Spanish flu. First to drop in the autumn of 1918 was British PM David Lloyd George. Those close to him later confirmed that at times his condition was touch and go. Next, American President Woodrow Wilson famously collapsed in the third wave of the flu pandemic in April 1919 during the Paris Peace Conference that would decide the future of Europe. Wilson pressed on with the talks but in a badly weakened state. Everyone around him commented on the fact that his mind wasn't functioning properly. He had been insistent on sticking to the principles which he said America entered the war over, make the world safe for democracy, etc., a peace without victory. He'd been extremely insistent on those things. Clemenceau called him pro-German, Clemenceau being the prime minister of uh, France. He gets sick. His mind's not functioning. He's physically weak. And he caved in on pretty much everything. Clemenceau ultimately basically just ran right over him. John Maynard Keynes, after the peace conference, called Wilson the greatest fraud on earth because he gave in on all these points of principle. And of course, that peace treaty was a significant contributor to the rise of the Nazis in World War, also the you know, World War II. 
There are limits, clearly, to the lessons you can draw from a half-hour trawl through the history books. Societies, technologies, treatment, circumstances, they're not the same from one era to the next. But given the experiences of everyone, from Pericles in ancient Greece to Woodrow Wilson in wartime America, the fundamental need to take the threat of pandemics seriously, and to do so from the very start of a crisis, really does leap out from the page. To do just the bare minimum, in Tony Blair's words, is to take a terrible risk. The interventions which leaders rely on have largely been there since medieval times and pretty effective since the 19th century. Isolation, quarantine, lockdown, hygiene, or hands, face, space. Those who emerge as heroes tend to be those who act swiftly and decisively at an early stage to try to protect the local population. Being honest with the public and tackling misinformation head-on are key. Those whom history remembers less kindly, the merchant leaders of Marseille and Hamburg, the corrupt wartime bosses of Philadelphia, were dishonest or complacent, too focused on the economy, far too slow to act. I'll let you draw your own conclusions about how history will judge our current leaders, which of them rose to the challenge and which did not. But perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised that so many fail. John Barry had a good line on this as we were chatting at the start of our interview. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My name's Jack Blanchard and I'm a a political editor in the UK here for Politico. And the idea of this podcast is to look back at pandemics from history and see what lessons politicians might have learned from how political leaders in the past reacted. When you talk about learning lessons, the key word in your opening sentence was might have learned. Indeed. I, I go around quoting Hegel that what we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. What we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. After the year we've just been through, it's hard to argue with that. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Westminster Insider. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a rating and a review. We'll be back with a full season kicking off later this month. Oh, and the next episode, fewer history lessons, promise. See you then.